entertainment, inspiration, and building community. This is the soundtrack of Savannah. This is your Savannah Philharmonic. Welcome to the soundtrack of Savannah podcast. I'm your host, Dee Daniels. I am so excited to introduce my next guest here on the show, Olivia Salas. She is the principal bassist for the Savannah Philharmonic, and she is going to chat about all the things with us on the show. I just got to see her perform um, not that long ago uh, at the Lucas Theater. It was amazing. And first, welcome to the show, Olivia. Thank you for doing this. I'm excited to chat with you. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to join and excited to have a good conversation with you. This is going to be a lot of fun. First, explain what it means to be a principal bassist. It sounds very official. And I mean, you even have your bass uh, right here with us on Zoom. So I get to look at it while we're chatting, which I'm very excited about. Yeah. So the orchestra operates in a very strict, respected hierarchy. And Without having that hierarchy on stage, it would be complete chaos because in the concert that you saw, there was a piece that only had 13 musicians on it. And then you saw another piece that had roughly, I'd say, 40 to 50 musicians on it. But orchestral pieces can really quickly get to be huge ensembles. And so typically an orchestra is about an 80 piece ensemble. And so with how big of an ensemble that is, you really need to have clear structure in communication and in roles. And so essentially the hierarchy rolls down to, you have your section, the section reports to the principal player. And then the, so it's the first chair player, the principal player, and the principal players all report to the higher timbre or the higher register instrument uh, in your kind of in family. And so for, as a strings player, I play bass. So I am, in the lowest register of the strings family. And so I, as principal bassist, am reporting to the principal first violinist, who is also called the concert master. And the concert master is sort of responsible for the entire string section and reports directly to the maestro or the conductor. So as principal bassist, it basically, it just means that I am in charge of the bass section. So I make sure that we have the same bowings, we have the same articulations, if there's something that sounds weird or isn't quite working in the section during rehearsal, I'll send a note down the line. Or we are constantly collaborating with the cellists. And so we want to make sure that we're doing the same expression as the cellists, because oftentimes we're playing the same music or very similar parts. And so it's a lot of coordinating with the principal cellist to make sure both of our sections are together and in tune with each other and in line with each other to make sure that it sounds like ensemble and not just 20 people playing kind of the same thing. I, I love that. It's what a great explanation that totally gives me a picture now, because I feel like, you know, a lot of times we'll sit and we'll look and we'll hear about the first chair and we'll hear about, uh, you know, the, the first violin and, and that sort of thing. And it's like, Oh, how did you get to be that? And, and, and what's that like? And, and, but it makes sense that there's a structure to it because once you get to performance night, it is like, all of those pieces come together. It's amazing how in sync you guys are. Like, how does that even happen? It happens in rehearsal and it also happens. It's one of the challenges of playing in orchestral music is checking a lot of your musical ideas or your opinions at the door and accepting that 
some opinions are not going to be something that you necessarily agree with, but you're going to be able to and enthusiastically perform. So a lot of times all of the, all of the expression and dynamic and sort of the really music, the stuff that you know, pulls your heartstrings and gives you goosebumps when you're listening to it, those decisions tend to be made by the conductor or the maestro and the conductor will give explanations. And we usually get notes or markings in our parts from conductors before we come to rehearsal. And then a lot of rehearsal, you know, you're always, you're already supposed to know your part. You're already supposed to be familiar with everything. And rehearsal is sort of bringing everything together. And it's the, the maestro does a lot to shape things. And so depending on who the conductor is, something could be incredibly quick and lively and upbeat. And the same piece could be a little bit somber and a little bit thoughtful by a different conductor. It just really depends on how they're pushing the orchestra to, to express. So speaking of different conductors, I mean, you're all over the place. You, you're, you're working with all kinds of conductors in, in different places. You're not just in Savannah. Like right now you're in LA. I mean, talk a little bit about what you do and who all you work with. My career in Los Angeles and just my music career in general has had two main forks. It's I have the performance aspect and the education aspect of my career. So a little bit of background on me is that when I told my parents I wanted to be a classical musician, they panicked a little bit. Uh, they're both very practical people and we're like, oh God, she's not going to be able to make to support herself. What is she going to do? And uh, that nervousness and also by my own interests and my own sort of strength in academia really pushed me to want to pursue more than just music. And so in my undergraduate career and my undergraduate experience, I pursued a double degree. So I hold two bachelor's degrees, uh, one in classical bass performance, but my other bachelor's degree is in neuroscience. And they sound really different, but they, I was able to find common ground in them by doing some neuroscience research. I participated in a sensory neuroscience lab uh, at Oberlin, which is where I did my undergrad, where I studied how having a sustained musical experience affects your ability to process sight and sound, particularly how well you can process sight and sound together. So your brain right now is seeing me talk and hearing me talk, and it's processing that as one thing rather than trying to understand those two streams at once. And there's a lot that can mess that up, your ability to integrate. Uh, one of the biggest ones is attention. So imagine if you're trying to pay attention to a lecture and someone's whispering in your ear or the fan's really loud, it's gonna pull your attention away. And part of what makes it harder for you to focus is not just that your attention is pulled to something else, it's that your brain stops integrating at a certain point. And so it, it's physically more difficult for your brain to process the lecture that you're trying to pay attention to because you are no longer integrating. We've all had the experience of sound lagging on a YouTube video and it gets really frustrating and hard to understand. The reason that happen that gets hard to understand is because you're no longer integrating. And so there's a, one of the prevailing theories for folks on the autism spectrum or people with severe ADHD that are nonverbal or have trouble with verbal communication is that their brain doesn't automatically understand or go to integrating information. So imagine every conversation you ever had, you're dealing with 
the audio lagging on a YouTube video for every single interaction you'd have. You would have a very hard time processing speech, very hard time expressing yourself if everything kind of was, it was really hard to engage. And so uh, unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the remedies or a lot of the treatments that we have for certain uh, neuroatypicalities like that tend to be more chemical and more pharmaceutical, which can be pretty, uh, pretty extreme, particularly on developing brains. A lot of what I was doing in that sensory neuroscience lab was looking at non-invasive treatments. So the brain, we can boil it down to just being a muscle. And so if we train it in a certain way, it's going to get better at doing certain things. And so if you put yourself into a sensory rich environment consistently, your brain is going to get better at integrating. So in the example of music, if you put a child in a musical performance situation, they are going to constantly be reaffirming and practicing their integration, whether that's tactile visual of feeling a string, seeing the string go down, whether that's audio visual of seeing them pull the bow across a string and hearing it across a string, whether that's tactile audio of plucking something and feeling plucking and hearing it pluck at the same time. And so that constant training and that constant reaffirmation of integration really improves uh, our ability to process sight and sound, but also just process multiple streams of uh, sensory information at once. And so uh, what we were finding was that people who have an experience in music are much faster and much more accurate at processing audiovisual information. And uh, to the point that neurotypical folks are that practice music are the fastest and most accurate. And then the next group of folks were actually a neurotypical folks that process that practice music. So not only did it have a I guess a therapeutic effect, it was so effective that it made people who normally would have a lot of a harder time, or I guess a deficit in this place of integrating have with that non-invasive treatment, which just feels like an extra after school activity, uh, improved their performance to the point that they're performing better than folks who are neurotypical, but do not have that experience. So from all of that, I became very excited about music and particularly about music education and having it be uh, a really important resource for young people to have access to. From that experience, we became really involved in a lot of after-school music programs or music programs that are free or low cost that are aimed at uh, young people from communities that historically don't have access to music programs. And so in Los Angeles, uh, a lot of what I've been doing here in terms of education has been working with the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, which is an El Sistema program uh, that is connected to the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And so I teach a lot through that program. I also started a music program at my local elementary school. Just, just I'm very excited and very interested. In, I think it's very important for, particularly for performance organizations to have this kind of presence in their community because it is so beneficial for young minds. And the other half here is I play in various orchestras. I'll play in the Golden State Pop Symphony Orchestra. I will periodically play in uh, local ensembles like uh, the American Youth Symphony, which is a, a local pre-professional ensemble. I'll play with the Bakersfield uh, Symphony, sometimes with the Santa Barbara Symphony. And uh, 
one of the really interesting things that I've gotten to become involved in in Los Angeles actually is uh, non-classical music and it's performing for sessions. So working for popular music sessions. Uh, interestingly enough, me as a classically trained bassist, a lot of my sessions have been in the rap and hip hop scene. That has been a very interesting experience um, because for a very long time, a lot of uh, rap and hip hop music and pop music in general, popular music in general, has really heavily relied on uh, computer synthesized sounds. Uh, once we were able to sort of mimic strings, mimic live music, live instruments on the computer, it was faster, it was cheaper, and it was more convenient to just play it on a keyboard than it was to hire a musician to come play it. But what a lot of young musicians and young artists are finding now is that they miss that that realness, the, the uniqueness of the sound, and also what a person who is an expert at their instrument can do and knows what sounds and what sounds great and what sounds raw and interesting and really moving on a live instrument. And so I have an interesting role as a bass player because I play bass and I also started on cello. So I'm a pretty proficient cello player as well. And between those two instruments, I can, with layered recordings mimic an entire string orchestra because I can play in high registers on cello and bass and it sounds a lot better to pitch something up than it does to pitch something down. A lot of the sessions that I'll be called for, I'll either be called to just play music that's already written or I'll be asked to help songwrite or help orchestrate a song that a rapper or hip hop musician is working on and I will come in and write and play a strings part or even help write and play a song. So that's been a really interesting experience and something that I'm really excited to continue down that realm. Well, first of all, I mean, obviously you're not busy at all um, and you have nothing to do. What have you been doing with your life? That's what all of us are asking. Um, <laughs> uh, I was so glad you brought up because I was so interested in talking about this, the the neuroscience piece. And like I saw in your bio, like how how passionate you were about music education. And I was so interested how you put those two worlds together and, and really are really an advocate for making such a difference and, and especially young people's lives with all of this. It is such important work to do with, I mean, I feel like we all know, we hear more about uh, diagnosis for kids with autism or ADHD. And, and we hear more of that now than we ever did before. And I feel like knowing how to navigate um, certain pieces of that to be able to still communicate and teach a child and have them grow in their way that makes sense to them. That whole lesson you just gave on integrating with the sounds and the visual, I'll never forget that. And and so that totally makes sense. I mean, it was just, is brilliant. Like, I mean, you taught me something there. So I think it's a valuable thing that, that, that you're pulling those two worlds together, talking about the music education with the Savannah Philharmonic that like, it, it the, the access to it is so appreciated. And, and I feel like the kids are learning life skills. Like you talked about, I mean, it's, it, it's not just about picking up this particular instrument, whatever the instrument is, it's about learning, you know, what the notes on the page mean. It, it's about learning um, how to take direction. It's about learning, you know, how to correct yourself in a situation and say, oh, I could make that better. It's about, you know, really learning uh, again, those big successful moments and say, you know, looking back and saying, 
I just did that. And that's amazing. <laughs> you know, it's about all of that. And so I, I think it's so needed and so important that you're that you're doing all of that. And I'm so, so glad you are. I, I want to talk a little bit too about your particular role with the Savannah Philharmonic. You know, the concert I recently saw you at, um, the the Mozart concert, the genius of Mozart, that second uh, half was really um, the chamber style. That's what you were describing at the beginning, which was a smaller group of people. And you were the sole bassist on stage. Um, talk to me about how that felt to be the sole one, you know, representing your your instrument and your section and, and what that feels like to be on stage, um, being the only one playing a particular instrument. It's, it's intimidating to be sure. Uh, it feels a little bit lonely at first, uh, partially because at my first performance with everybody, uh, I'd say about first 10 or so minutes of the, that first rehearsal for that piece, I felt a little bit lonely because, you know, I don't have another bass player or even another string player there with me. I don't really know anybody yet. And I also play, you know, the biggest instrument on stage and very, very, your eyes are pulled to it automatically. And then the way that it was staged, it made me all the more prominent where it was the ensemble was put into two arcs. And so there was one arc that had all the, the woodwinds sitting in the front row. And then the second arc was on platforms and it was two French horns, me and two French horns. So I was flanked by the brass. And so I'm on a platform I don't sit on a regular chair. I sit on a stool. So I am elevated on top of everybody else above my, uh, above the platform and everything smack dab in the middle. So I did feel like a little bit of a giant monster too, with how low my instrument is with how different the sound is. I sort of felt like I was stomping around a little bit, but it sounds so different from sitting behind your instrument than it does from the audience. Uh, and sound travels and mixes in very different ways. String instruments do not project nearly as much as wind instruments do. So from my perspective, I felt like I was just stomping all over the piece, but from everybody else's perspective, I was just getting nothing but play louder, play louder. Um, but to, to, to answer your question, what it feels like to be, you're the only person playing your part. It, there, there's a, a level of focus that is required because when when you have other members in your section, you uh, of course are reading the music or counting your rests or making sure you're coming in at the right time, but you also have that sort of affirmation from the rest of your section that you're in the right spot. And without that on your own, you have to really be paying attention, not just to your part, but how your part fits into the rest of the ensemble, because you are the only person filling your specific musical role. So for me, I'm the only person that is covering the bass part. And so I have to make sure that I am spot on to support the ensemble because the bass does kind of act as the platform for, for the ensemble. When we talk about uh, balance and how things should sound, we often talk about balance in terms of a pyramid. So the sound, also, the base of the pyramid is the base sound. And so everything sits on top of that. And then as you get higher, it kind of all stacks up to the, the tip of the pyramid is usually the soloist or the highest register instrument. And so me as a bass player in that role, I need to be making sure that I am staying consistent, following the conductor, but also fitting into everybody's expression. And because it's a chamber piece, there's a lot more room for 
you adding your own personal expression to it. And it was a feature for oboe and clarinet. And so them as soloists are also have even more space to put in their expression. And so not only am I really making sure that I need to follow the conductor, I need to make sure that I'm also following the soloists and giving them space and have allowing them to, to create the expression, the music that they want to create, because I am there as the ultimate supportive backbone role. You're, you're the, you're the bottom of the pyramid for the cheerleaders. You're the base. You, you know what I mean? Like everyone climbs on top of you and it's like, it's pretty phenomenal. I, I, I loved watching you. Uh, you were, it was like, it's funny that you say, you know, you were like flanked by the French horns and all that. And you were, but what was great was like, I, I felt like it was, it was like Thanksgiving and you were the centerpiece and it was like, look at her. And I just wa watching how quickly you like your fingers ran up and down some of those runs. I, and I'm not even sure if that's the right word to use for it, but it was, it was amazing. And I, I don't know how you do that, but I I'd love to find out how do you get, so, is it just practice, practice, practice that you get so quick at, at running your fingers up and down like that? Yes and no. I've always been that's always been something that I've been very strong at is playing quickly. In fact, it's something that that's consistently something that I've got to work on is not playing things too fast. Ah. Uh, so I've, yes, yeah, that's always something that constantly, all of my bass teachers, that has always been a, a lecture point of practice with the metronome so that you don't rush. So you don't take, and also so that you know what te tempo you need to take it because more often than not, I want to take something about 15 to 20% faster than it should go. Uh, I don't know if that's just because I tend to be a really energetic person or what that is, but I've always been comfortable playing fast, particularly on bass. I think part of that has to do with starting on cello and cello tends to have a lot more of a melodic and a lot more notes than the bass does in an orchestra role. And so I got used to and comfortable with that. Um, but I think a lot of it is it, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of work on scales and fundamentals and really working hard to sort of build up your hand positions and make sure that everything works for you. Um, I have a, a bit of an interesting background in terms of, of base sort of upbringing. Uh, right now is a very interesting, very, this is a little bit into the weeds of, of base world. Base pedagogy and, and teaching base and learning base, the approach to playing the instrument is, is a very interesting time to, to be a, a young bass player and to be learning the instrument because they're we're kind of in the middle of a renaissance for how to approach how to play the instrument for a very long time the approach to the instrument required you to be a large man with large hands and to be able to muscle through everything uh, the instrument is very large and can be quite unwieldy and so for a very long time the only people that really could approach the predominant technical style and the predominant sort of approach to the instrument were people who were of large of stature and could really muscle through things. And that is kind of considered this old school method of playing and approach. And so the old school method is, is the, the main sort of guru of bass is Samandal and his method of these very set hand positions that just sort of move around the instrument and you don't roll anywhere. You don't, you don't sort of stretch for anything. You just have this position and you move it everywhere. And if your hand's too small, your hand's too small, you can't play bass. If your arms are too short, your arms are too short, you can't play bass. Um, and that has been really challenged by a lot of this new school approach to playing the instrument, which is 
uh, less of a universal approach and more of an individualized approach of looking into how can we utilize the individual's body in a way that is healthy and practical for approaching this instrument. So how do we use the natural weight of your arms? How do we use the natural shape of your hand? And what solutions can we come up with that fit your body specifically? So I don't have huge hands. And so I have to shift a lot or I can either go up and down the instrument a lot or go across the instrument a lot. And so I tend to stay across the instrument a lot so that I can keep one kind of roadblock, one marker and go back and forth around that. And so I'm using all four strings quite a bit more than maybe some other instrumentalists who will use just the upper two strings. And so I think in my base upbringing, I was started in the old school method and then introduced to the newer school method uh, halfway through my undergraduate a career into, into uh, later on between pursuing my uh, bachelor's degree and pursuing my master's degree, I independently studied with the bassist here, the principal bassist of the LA Opera. And I credit him a lot with, uh, with really refining a lot of my technique and infusing a lot of that new school practice into some of the old school foundation that I had to help make myself more consistent and also healthier for my hands and arms to be able to play something that fast and an approach like that. So when you have these runs, when you have all these notes to play, you you really need to make sure that you're loose. The faster that you, the faster that it is, the looser you need to be. And everyone's natural instinct when you look at the page and you just see black with all those notes is to tense up and try to just muscle your way through it. And a lot of old school technique kind of fed, fed into that too, because you had to be so tense to hold those shapes. And so I think key is sort of keeping your hands relaxed, making sure that you have really specific solutions for everything. But on top of that, uh, given that it's a Mozart piece, Mozart's music is written so well that it's it's really intuitive. And so if you have a, a strong background in a lot of these fundamental techniques, you're practicing a lot of scales, you're practicing a lot of arpeggios, and a lot of Mozart's music follows scales, follows arpeggios. And so as you read it, once you understand the shapes and once you understand this very intuitive and very sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say predictable because that makes it sound boring, but it's uh, music theory wise predictable. It's very perfect in terms of music theory. Let's put it that way. So like the note that comes next is the note that should come next in terms of music theory. And that makes it so much easier for you to comfortably and relaxingly play these sort of intense runs because you don't have some random note that doesn't belong on the key coming from left field that is putting you on edge. You know that it's all gonna be kind of in this pattern. It's all gonna be in this harmonic and physical pattern on the instrument, which makes it a lot, I don't wanna say easier because it's not easy to play, but it makes it a, a lot more sort of relaxing and more comfortable, comfortable to play than some maybe more out there music. Yeah. And I, I would think with this new um, sort of technique and this new method and, and playing new model, it sort of sounds like a very exciting time to be learning the bass. And, and especially for those who might have thought that they could never uh, fit the, the you know, large stature of the bass that, you know, they thought, well, it's too big for me. I can't play that. Um, I, I think that's so exciting. But along with these new techniques, do you still find that you have a chance to 
to express yourself in everything that you play um, with, with, with an orchestra? Do you have, do you still have that opportunity with these sort of new techniques? Do you have more of an opportunity to express yourself even more? Uh, I'm curious where your personal expression comes in with the music that we hear. I love that question. So technique serves the only purpose it serves is to support your expression. So if you're in any situation where your technique is making it so that you can't express what you want to express, your technique's wrong, not your expression. And so this is a this is an argument that I have with my students a lot. Well, they want to do something because it's easier, but it doesn't have the same musical expression that they want it to have. It's like, well, then it's it's not correct. It doesn't matter if it's the easier approach. What matters is it's whether it's the musical approach that you're trying to have, whether it's the expressive approach that you're trying to have. So I would say that these new approaches to technique and these new approaches to how you physically hold the instrument and get around the instrument, make it so much easier to express what you want to express. And if you are coming to a situation in which you you have an idea or you have a musical phrase or, or something that you want to play, but your technique or your approach is not allowing that to happen, you need to examine your technique and your approach to ensure that you can make that happen. And so in orchestras, definitely there are, I mean, you're always going to, with having so many people and playing together as an ensemble, there's always going to be moments where it's like, oh, I would have, I would have thought that if I were playing this just by myself, I would have played it this way. But Yes, there is definitely space for you to be able to express things in the way that you want to express things. And uh, one of the things that was actually really fantastic about working with with Kellen this past time around was seeing how careful he is and how thoughtful he is in taking the musician's opinions into consideration. So he, particularly in the chamber piece, was very vocal about saying, I have suggestions and this is a solution that I have, but if you have a solution that you're very passionate about, tell me and we'll see if we can find a middle ground or we can see if we can go with your opinion or whether that's ultimately not going to work for the ensemble, which is, it's so refreshing because it's, you don't always get that with, with conductors. And so there's most definitely space for you to put your own musical expression in there and technique should never get in the way of that. I noticed something too that I wanted to ask you about. I noticed something watching everyone, especially during uh, that the chamber style uh, of that night. I, I noticed everyone's body language while they play. It, you know, is that part of your expression too? That you know, there are just moments when the body language is so representative of what I'm hearing. And so I almost think I could take out the sound and just watch the body language and still get the feeling. I think, I think it's different for each instrument. I can't speak to other instruments, but in terms I've always played, I've always picked, you know, much to my folks dismay, I've always picked the hugest instruments. And so with playing such large instruments, it is a full body affair. It is, you have to get your whole body into actually making things sound. Uh, so when you're pushing and pulling the bow, instead of thinking about it coming from your arm, it's coming from your back and your hips. So your mm. whole body's into it, no matter what. Uh, and I, it's it's interesting because I think I find in watching recordings of myself and hearing to people, hearing people expressing or, or telling me after they've seen me perform, the more comfortable I am with a piece, the more I'm moving. So if I'm stone still, it's probably because I'm nervous about what's coming up next or I'm really focused in or maybe not as as comfortable in the piece as I could be. 
And I think that sort of expression, you don't necessarily realize you're moving as much as you do. I know there's some of it has to come with just the physicality of playing a, a huge instrument like the bass, but I also think that that movement comes with you kind of naturally trying to move with the piece or, you know, if you if you want something to to get louder, to go up, you do kind of feel yourself moving forward. Or if you want to come back, you kind of feel yourself moving back. Uh, I have to I I know I tend to have a pretty expressive face, too. And so I I know you see it a lot in the expression of my face. When I was younger, I had. Uh, the really unfortunate tick of whenever I would miss a note or play something poorly, I would have the hugest guilty grin on my face. <laughs> so I've gotten rid of that because everybody can tell they're like, oh, I saw you missed a note at this point. I was like, no. <laughs> so I've gotten, yeah, I've managed to work through that. But there's also something to be said about having the really expressive face while you play and really thinking about how you want it to sound and how you kind of convey that. So I think it's, it's similar to think about how, how much more information you get between see, uh, talking to somebody face to face, talking to somebody on the phone, or just seeing text message or seeing an email. So it's so easy to misconstrue how someone's expressing themselves or the, the tone and intention by just an email or even by a phone call. But once you have the, the visual aid to it, it's a lot easier for you to understand what someone's trying to express. And so not so much, I guess, motion comes into that, but I think a lot about it in the face. Uh, I always, I tell my students a lot that when we are cueing to start a piece, it's in the eyebrows and it's in the sniff. So it's how you move your eyebrows and how you breathe in to, to express something. So if you want, if you want something to start really lively or kind of burst into, into expression, then you're going to, breathe in a certain way and your eyebrows are probably going to be up. And if you want something to kind of, you know, royal up like a swamp bubble coming out of the, the depths, then you're going to, you're going to have a different way that you breathe. And maybe you're, you're going to have a little bit more of a furled brow and you're going to, you're going to show that expression in a different way. I remember my music teacher in high school and she, same thing. I remember so vividly when, you know, she's teaching us all sort of in our voice, how to, how to get our own voice and sing notes and, and, and match the key from a piano. And, and as she would get higher on the piano, and I remember thinking, I can't, I can't get that high. And she would say, let's try this. Let's raise the chin, raise the eyebrows, you know, everything up, chest up, everything up. And I could sing a higher note. I mean, it just, it's so interesting how that really does translate, you know, musically and artistically for all of us, I think, in, in just about anything we're doing. Yeah, it's a full body experience. And I think I, I, again, I'm not an expert or, or professional level on really anything other than cello and bass. I can play violin, but I sound like a bass player playing violin. <laughs> uh, and, and, but I watching other musicians, I'm sure that there is a lot more physicality that goes into it than what we see. Like in flute players are moving as much despite them having, you know, an instrument that's the size of my bow. And so I, I have to think that there's a lot more sort of full body expression experience that just really goes into it. And it's, it's captivating to watch, uh, when you really see somebody that's fully physically embodying the piece. Uh, I really admire Yo-Yo Ma's playing for that reason. His, he's, he's so, he's so engaging. And a lot of the reason he's so engaging is because of the physical 
sort of figure and the physical expression that he has on stage. Oh, no doubt. No doubt about it. And you're right. It is, it is some, it is quite something to watch and and you really do feel something from it. Obviously, I mean, your, your success and your talent is very, very apparent, um, became even more apparent. I'm sure when you were Grammy nominated, can we talk a little bit about that, Olivia? Sure, we can. That was that was a pleasant surprise. So I talked a little bit earlier about kind of getting involved in the session musician scene. And so that my Grammy nomination is through some work that I did there. I helped write a song on uh, Leon Bridges latest album called uh, called Gold Diggers Sound. For that album, I helped write a song called Blue Mesas. And uh, Gold Digger Sound ended up becoming nominated for Best R&B Album. And so as a songwriter on that album, I am nominated for that category of Best R&B Album. And so in writing that song, I wrote it, me and one of my best friends, DJ Stanfield, wrote the song, that the sort of skeleton of the song together. He invited me to sort of jam. He's a songwriter and producer and is constantly calling me to jam and sort of collaborate to create pieces. And so this one, I, I don't think either of us expected it to sort of go as far as it did. We, we kind of were getting in the habit. We do this quite a bit where we both, uh, we both surf. And so we'll go surfing together and, um, yeah, we'll go surfing together and then decide that, oh, we don't have anything to do for the rest of the day or we have the day off. So let's, let's jam. And so that particular day we went surfing and then, uh, we, we, we decided to, to just kind of mess around and jam. And he had said that there were some whispers around the uh, label that he worked for, that Leon Bridges was looking for material for his next album. And uh, the the vibe that they said they wanted was Samurai Cowboy. And both of us were like, we don't know what the heck that means. Like, what is that? And so we, as kind of a joke, we're like, oh, let's let's try and write some samurai cowboy music. And the first thing that came out was, was Blue Mesas. And so we, together, we created, by, by creating the skeleton, what I mean is that we wrote this uh, sort of haunting melody that I'm playing on bass and then wrote chord changes. And I'm, I'm playing layered chords of the bass that kind of sounds like a strings part that's accompanying it. And he's playing a piano. He's a very accomplished pianist and singer. And so we brought that and submitted it to the studio. And I think that was back in like 2018 that we wrote that. And the song didn't come out until I think 2021, I want to say, is when it finally came out. So it was a while. And the way that those things kind of work is that you submit a song uh, as a songwriter. If you're if you you are signed to the label, you're kind of submitting songs constantly to the label. And so DJ submitted the song to the label. And they listened to it, brought it to Leon Bridges, and he he flagged it and he liked it and kind of uh, sussed it out into a, a larger, fuller piece, wrote lyrics to it, wrote more of a vocal melody to it. Because again, we had just written this sort of background piece. It was pure instrumental that Leon Bridges' beautiful voice could sit on top of. Right. And, yeah. And so that ends up going through quite the ringer of of multiple different versions being recorded and written of it. And then usually when artists are putting together a studio album, they record something along the lines of 25 songs 
or they have like 25 working songs for an album and they need to cut it down to 10, maybe 12. And so I would periodically get updates from DJ being like, it's still in the, it's still in the running. It's still there. It made the next round of cuts. It's still there. Here's a new version of it. It's still there. And then finally it ended up on the album and got released. And I think that people really appreciated the album because it's, it's a, uh, Leon Bridges has a very unique kind of soulful sound uh, and a very organic sound that you don't hear a lot uh, in popular music, at least right now. And so it's I, it's it was a it was a happy surprise. And uh, on the actual song, you can hear in, in the opening of it. That's my playing on my upright bass, like the original playing that we submitted. And you hear all the strings kind of backgrounds. And that's that's all me playing it in after a, a particularly fun surf session, some random afternoon in 2018. Some samurai cowboy coming to life. Cowboy, that's right. That's so good. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm sure uh, along with everybody else, your parents are also very proud of that. Very excited about it. Well, and like I said, it's been really interesting in, in that realm because I knew who Leon Bridges was, but uh a lot of times when I'm getting called in to work on some of these sessions, I don't, I don't really know who the artists are or I don't know these producers. And so I'll, I'll, I know like one or two of the producers and they're the ones that call me to come, but there's usually a huge team of sound engineers and producers and other musicians there and even the artists there. And so I'll come and I'll play. And at the end, I've done this a couple of times where I've gone up to somebody and been like, wow, you sound so good. Like, keep it up. Like, I'm really excited for you. Like, fantastic job. And then I leave and then I'll look them up and they have something like 50 million followers on Instagram and they're like famous producers or they're, there's some, yeah, they're like a viral rapper. And it's just like, oh, that's embarrassing. Like, <laughs> I, oh, well, like, at least they know it was genuine compliment. So. Exactly. They probably needed it. Everybody needs it. I don't care where you are on the ladder. When can we see you again in Savannah? What's coming up next for Savannah uh, music for you? Hold on. So I'm going to be in Savannah for the next performance. It's the New World Symphony, which is one of my favorite symphonies. Actually, I'm very excited to play it. I have not played it since Youth Orchestra. And so I'm so excited to play it with this ensemble. And that performance, I believe is September 14th you will see me uh, playing that at the Lucas Theater. Um, the New World Symphony is, is very cool. It's, uh, it's written by uh, Dvorak, who is notorious for writing nothing but earworms. So every melody in it is going to get stuck in your head. It's awesome. So we'll go home humming all of the things. Do you have a favorite composer that you, that you play? Do you have a favorite I would say I, I actually I do have a favorite across the board um, and it's a little bit embarrassing because it's like a, a, I would say pretentious, but like uh, I I am quite obsessed with Mahler's music, uh, Gustav Mahler. So the music that is most fun to play on the upright bass in terms of orchestral playing tends to be heavy late romantic music because we don't have to worry about sounding light and buoyant. We can dig in and we usually have pretty raucous parts. And so I, I really love playing that kind of music. And I particularly admire Mahler's music because it is so expressive. And he is a very, he was a very complicated figure and had a very complicated life. And so a lot of his 
expression and a lot of his everything is just is so rich in terms of, of multiple meanings behind it. So, for example, um, one of a, a tempo marking that you see quite a bit in Mahler's music is etwas bewegt, which is it's in German. And so etwas bewegt translates to uh, like somewhat animated, somewhat agitated, but always moving forward. Mm. And so it's in something as as simple as that kind of uh, expression marking is just it's so it's so thick. Uh, I, the my favorite piece of his is uh, part. It's it's a he he wrote a lot of what's called song cycles, and so he would write maybe it's between usually around six songs uh, that are can be orchestrated either for vocalist and piano or vocalist and ensemble. And uh, this one is Rikut Lieder. And it's uh, the, the the song in that one that I love the most is, so it's in German, it's got a long title, so get ready. It's uh, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, uh, which literally translates to I have become lost unto the world. And uh, if you, I, I learned German in college. And so if you, if you're reading the poem in German, it's unclear as to whether the emotion of the poem or the the intention of the poem is I have become lost as in I'm forsaken. Nobody remembers me. I am alone. Or whether it is I have I have become lost. I have ascended this plane and I am I I do not recognize the world anymore because I am I have become lost. I am so far above it, so far beyond this world. And um what I find so magical about Mahler's compositions and a lot of his orchestration is that as you listen to the piece, you genuinely can't tell whether it's supposed to be sublime or whether it's supposed to be hideously sad. And uh, I, I've, I've done this a couple times with, with students of mine where I've just played the piece and I've asked them to tell me, give me one word that describes the piece. And half of them say like relaxing, calm, peaceful. And the other half say melancholy, sad, depressing, like alone. And I think that that duality and that sort of complexity is so interesting and so hard to do in music. And I, I, I just really admire his compositions and that they were able to be as complex as they are. Isn't that what it's all about? Life in general, like having that duality and for somebody to hit that on the nose with what they write. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. You're absolutely right. I'm I'm glad you brought that up, and all of us can uh, take a listen to some of that, and and sort of get in that mindset and experience that. Well, we're excited to see you again uh, for the New World Symphony, and I think that's going to be just such a wonderful thing um, again at the Lucas Theater. What a great place to play! I'm sure you enjoyed being at the Lucas Theater. It's so beautiful. Not a bad seat in the house. No, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. All the the kind of gold leaf and the design. It looks like a it looks like a small like opera house, like a little European opera house. It even has box seats. I was, I was, you know, it's a little bit distracting from on stage to be honest. I'm like trying to like make sure that I'm paying attention to the music and not just staring at the the beautiful venue that I'm in. Great, no doubt. Well, we're excited to see you again. And uh, where can everybody find you? Where can we follow you and stalk you on on like Instagram or any of the things? I do have some Instagrams. I have a, I, <laughs> I have a, I, I haven't contributed to it in a while, but I do have a Instagram account. It's called Olivia's Bad at Bass, uh, oh. where I, I, I do silly little covers of music. So I'll, 
I'll make little covers of like emo music or, or rock music. So I'll do like little covers of, of something that I'm listening to. I heard in the, I heard on like the radio or something. I don't know. I think it's, it's always fun to, to put music that you hear on the radio into the context of upright bass, because you usually don't hear the bass playing a melody and you usually don't get to hear that kind of music on the bass. So it's, it's filled with all of that. Nice. I'm going to, I'm going to find that as soon as we're done to say now. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're excited to see you and, uh, and, and gosh, we, we are um, a much better world for having you and your talents and your gifts in it. Um, you are doing such wonderful things. Um, continue to do the work that you're doing all over the place. And we're so glad you're a part of the community here in Savannah too. Very excited to be joining the orchestra and getting involved in the community. It sounds like Savannah's doing a lot of really interesting stuff just around the community and so active in the city. And I'm excited to just jump in and get as involved as I can. Welcome to your open invitation to enjoy music with your friends and neighbors. This is the Soundtrack of Savannah. There are so many great ways you can support your Savannah Philharmonic, including giving through the annual fund, or to our community music school. You can also show support by sponsoring a season concert or our Fill the Neighborhood series or annual Fill the Park event in Forsyth Park. You can even sponsor one of our talented musicians or host them in your home during the season. Your support and commitment is vital to our ability to perform extraordinary music and present free music education programming of the highest caliber for the Savannah community and beyond. Planned giving from individual community partners to corporate sponsorships creates opportunities for the Savannah Philharmonic to grow and also allows you to leave a legacy, ensuring the organization continues to entertain inspire and build community for generations to come for more information on sponsorship levels and a full list of concerts and community events please visit us at savannahphilharmonic.org follow us on facebook and instagram and be sure to subscribe to the sav phil podcast you're listening to right now so you can be in the know behind the scenes and center stage at your savannah philharmonic mm -hmm.